0: All right, uh, if you recall last time, we had started to talk about John Calvin's great masterpiece, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And today, we're going to spend quite a bit of time delving into uh, the Institutes. And um, I've got quite a few quotes from, from the book and hopefully this will help you get a better idea of what this you know everybody talks about it but a lot of people don't read it and it's it was a very important work it has shaped a major section of christianity and continues the ideas in it continue to influence christianity today so it's important that we know what is in this book So the first edition of the Institutes was written in Latin and published in Basel, Switzerland, where Calvin was in exile. And it included a dedication to the French king, Francis I. Calvin was very concerned that Francis, who had been persecuting French Protestants known as Huguenots, uh, he was very concerned that this persecution would stop that Francis would see that the Huguenots and other Protestants were not heretics. This was very important for Calvin. So uh, the king uh, was labeling Huguenots and other Protestants as Anabaptists, although they were not Anabaptists. And we will get to the Anabaptist movement. Um, I don't know exactly when I'm going to touch upon the Anabaptists. There's... There's lots of ground to cover yet, um, but in the weeks ahead at some point, we will delve into what the Anabaptists were, what they believed, and their difficult history uh, in Europe and throughout the world. Anyway, the Anabaptists were radical reformers who part, part of what they were concerned with was wanting to separate church from state. And again, recall from previous talks that so many times the intertwining of church and state in uh, Renaissance-era Europe was um, problematic for the faith. Next slide. So the Institutes consisted of six chapters that discussed the Ten Commandments. This is the initial Uh, when the the Institutes first came out, it was a much smaller work. It discussed the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Sacraments of Baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Disputed sacraments, because if you recall, in the Roman Catholic Church, there are seven sacraments, and almost all Protestants recognize only two. Um, And then the topic of Christian liberty. Most of the themes of Calvin's mature thought were contained in the first edition. The first French edition prepared by Calvin and published in Basel in 1541 was the first great work in argumentative French prose. It influenced French thought and literary style. In fact, Calvin did for the French language what Martin Luther had done for the German language, Uh, standardized it in many respects, elevated it to a much higher level, and both of these very important reformers, what they did with language had a huge effect upon the cultures in which they lived. Next slide. The final edition of the Institutes in Latin and published in Geneva in 1559 was more than four times longer than the first edition. It was organized into four books concerning creator, redeemer, spirit, and church. The primary themes dealt with God's sovereignty, his grace, and his redemption of undeserving sinners. This edition was published in French in 1560 in English a year later, and eventually in many other languages. Now the word institutes can also be translated as instructions. Next slide. My reasons for publishing the institutes, Calvin wrote in 1557, were first, that I might vindicate from unjust affront my brethren, whose death was precious in the sight of the Lord, and next, that some sorrow and anxiety should move foreign people, since the same sufferings threaten many. Calvin's goal was to show the king that the reformers were advocating the correct Christian doctrine of the church, and its marks are, quote, the pure preaching of the word of God and rightful administration of the sacraments, end of quote. Again, Calvin was trying to show the Catholic French King that Protestants were not in fact heretics, but in fact they were reforming the church's teaching and practice. Next slide. The Institutes in its first form was not merely an exposition of Reformation doctrine. It proved the inspiration to a new form of Christian life for many It is indebted to the work of Martin Luther in what is said of divine will and predestination. And Calvin also drew upon the later, or rather, it is also indebted to Martin Bucer, another important Swiss-German reformer, in what is said of divine will and predestination and indebted to Martin Luther in the treatment of faith and the sacraments. Calvin also drew upon the later medieval scholastics for teaching involving the unsuspected implications of freedom in the relation of church and state. Next slide. In the first edition, Calvin developed the institutes as the examination of the creator and his creatures. Above all, the book concerns the knowledge of God the creator But, as it is in the creation of man that the divine perfections are best displayed, there's also an examination of what can be known about humankind. It is mankind's knowledge of God and what he requires of his creatures that is the primary issue of concern for a book of theology. In the first chapter, these two issues are considered together to show what God has to do with mankind. Next slide. The first edition is also concerned with how knowing God is connected with human knowledge. So it it relates to the idea of epistemology, which is the study of how do we know that we know How do we know that we're correct, that our knowledge is true? In the last edition, 1559, Calvin had reorganized the material to the point that he claimed it to be almost a new work. The last edition is in four sections and 80 chapters organized on the basis of the Apostles' Creed. First, the knowledge of God is considered as knowledge of the Father the creator, provider, and sustainer. Second, it is examined how the son reveals the father since only God is able to reveal God. Next slide. The third section of the Institutes describes the work of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead and who comes from the father and the son to effect a union in the church through faith in Jesus Christ with God forever. The fourth section speaks of the Christian church and how it is to live out the truths of God in the scriptures, particularly through the sacraments. This section also describes the functions and ministries of the church, how civil government relates to religious matters and includes a lengthy discussion of the deficiencies of the papacy. Next slide. So here we have some key quotes from Calvin's Institutes. On knowing God and self, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. The knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find him. Next slide. On the effect of knowledge of God, the effect of our knowledge rather ought to be, first, to teach us reverence and fear, and secondly, to induce us under its guidance and teaching to ask every good thing from him, and when it is received, ascribe it to him. Next slide. For how can the idea of God enter your mind without instantly giving rise to the thought that since you are his workmanship, you are bound by the very law of creation to submit to his authority, that your life is due to him, that whatever you do ought to have reference to him. Next slide on false worship. Those, therefore, who set up a fictitious worship merely worship and adore their own delirious fancies. Indeed, they would never dare so to trifle with God had they not previously fashioned him after their own childish conceits. And the picture uh, connected with this quote, it wasn't in the Institutes, it's a modern picture, But this portrays Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before the idol that the king had set up, refusing to bow down before that king's statue. Next slide. On chance and providence. Suppose a man falls among thieves or wild beasts, is shipwrecked at sea by a sudden gale is killed by a falling house or tree. Suppose another man wandering through the desert finds help in his straits or difficulties, having been tossed by the waves, reaches harbor, miraculously escapes death by a finger's breadth. Carnal reason ascribes all such happenings, whether prosperous or adverse, to fortune but anyone who has been taught by Christ's lips that all the hairs of his head are numbered, Matthew 20, 30, will look farther afield for a cause and will consider that all events are governed by God's secret plan. The idea of fortune, or as exemplified in the pagan goddess Fortuna, was an important concept in both pagan and Renaissance humanistic thought. Next slide. On the sovereignty of God, God asserts his possession of omnipotence and claims our acknowledgment of this attribute, vigilant, efficacious, operative, and engaged in continual action, not a mere general principle of confused motion as if he should command a river to flow through the channels once made for it, but a power constantly exerted on every distinct and particular movement. Next slide. For he is accounted omnipotent, not because he is able to act, yet sits down in idleness, or continues by a general instinct, the order of nature originally appointed by him. But because he governs heaven and earth by his providence and regulates all things in such a manner that nothing happens but according to his counsel. So among the reformers, the idea of God's providence came to counteract the pagan idea of fortune or fortuna. Next slide. It were cold and lifeless to represent God as a momentary creator who completed his work once for all and then left it. Here, especially, we must dissent from the profane and maintain that the presence of the divine power is conspicuous, not less in the perpetual condition of the world than in its first creation. In other words, Calvin is saying, God doesn't just merely set the planet spinning in motion, create natural law, and set it to keep working like a perpetual motion machine. Instead, he is constantly, moment by moment, second by second, involved in every aspect of the functioning of the entire universe that he has created. And with this quote, we see that Calvin stood opposed to an idea that would find greater expression more than 200 years later in a movement known as the Enlightenment of the 18th century. This idea is commonly known as deism, which believes that a supreme being created the universe, quote, and then left it, close quote. Next slide. The second book of the Institutes includes several essays on the original sin and the fall of man, which directly refer to Augustine, who developed these doctrines as well. Calvin often cited the early church fathers in order to defend the reformed cause against the charge that the reformers were creating new theology. In Calvin's view, sin began with the fall of Adam and propagated, or spread to, affected all of humanity. The domination of sin is complete to the point that people are driven to evil. Thus, fallen humanity is in need of the redemption that can only be found in Christ. Next slide. Calvin also developed the idea of covenant theology as he described the special situation of the Jews with regard to salvation who lived during the time of the Old Testament. God made a covenant with Abraham promising the coming of Christ. Hence, the Old Covenant was not in opposition to Christ, but was rather a continuation of God's promise and then a continuation, of course, into the fulfillment in the new covenant. Calvin then describes the new covenant using the passage from the Apostles' Creed that describes Christ's suffering under Pontius Pilate and then, in the future, his return to judge the living and the dead. Next slide. And again, unfortunately, that picture is a little dark, but um, it is a painting from the 1400s of the crucifixion. For Calvin, the whole course of Christ's obedience to the Father removed the discord between humanity and God. Christ led a perfect sinless life in perfect obedience to his Father. Christ endured his betrayal, trial, scourging and crucifixion also in perfect obedience to his father's will, willingly laying down his life and then taking it up again in the resurrection. Next slide. In the third book of the Institutes, Calvin describes how the spiritual union of Christ and humanity is achieved. He first defines faith as the firm and certain knowledge of God in and through Jesus Christ. The immediate effects of sin are repentant, rather, the immediate effects of faith are repentance and the remission of sin. This is followed by spiritual regeneration, which returns the believer to the state of holiness before Adam's transgression. Complete perfection, fully realized in a human being's life, is unattainable in this life. And the believer should expect a continual struggle against sin, again, in this life. So although Calvin believes in the sanctification of the believer through in his walk with Christ, he will never be perfect this side of heaven. Next slide. Now, several chapters, as you might expect, in the third book of the Institutes are devoted to the sub, er, rather, the subject of justification by faith alone. Calvin defined justification as "quote the acceptance by which God regards us as righteous, whom He has received into grace." End of quote. In this definition, it is clear that it is God who initiates and carries through the action and that people play no role. God is completely sovereign in salvation. How are justification and sanctification related? Calvin shows that both justification and sanctification are the results of the believers' union with Christ through faith. So again, like all the reformers, justification is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Works are not involved. Next slide. Near the end of the Institutes, Calvin describes and defends the doctrine of predestination, a doctrine advanced by Augustine in opposition to the teachings of Pelagius. And it may be that in future talks we'll have a chance to delve more deeply into uh, St. Augustine and his teachings and the teachings of Pelagius and how um, Augustine's uh, teachings and Pelagius. You may have heard of these names, you may be somewhat aware of who these people are, Um, but unfortunately we don't have time to develop this today. Um, Hopefully we can get to it in the future Fellow theologians who followed the Augustinian tradition on this point included Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther, though Calvin's formulation of the doctrine went further than the tradition before him. The principle in Calvin's words is that, all are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation, end of quote. The institutes are not just a theological work, but a work of brilliant scholarship. Calvin incorporates critiques of Greek and Roman philosophies and philosophers, illustrations and quotes from the early church fathers, and Bible commentary to illustrate the points he wishes to bring out. Pagan ideas are contrasted with biblical truth about the nature of God and man and refuted. Calvin also uses ideas from the writings of the early church fathers to support his arguments against pagan thought. Many passages of the Bible, again, against pagan thought, are cited as well. Next slide. Now, again, this idea of fortune or fate was a very important concept in the ancient Greco-Roman world. With the increased interest in classical learning in the Renaissance and Reformation era came a resurgence of pagan religious ideas, and these were often incorporated into the new Renaissance humanism. If you've ever attended a performance of a Shakespeare play or read any of his plays or uh, plays uh, and or literature from this period fourteen hundreds, fifteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds. Um, you often run into, in many authors, the idea of fortune and fate. And again, these are essentially pagan ideas. Calvin writes in Institutes Book 1, Chapter 16, Section 8, though we are averse to all contentions about words, yet we admit not the term fate, both because it is of that novel and profane kind which Paul teaches us to avoid, and because they endeavor to load the truth of God with the odium attached to it. So Calvin was very much against this idea of fate or fortune dictating what happens to people. Next slide. Calvin continues, for we do not, with the Stoics, imagine a necessity arising from a perpetual concatenation, an intricate series of causes contained in nature. But we make God the arbiter and governor of all things, who in his own wisdom has, from the remotest eternity, decreed what he would do, and now by his own power execute executes what he has decreed. It was truly observed by Basil the Great an early church father, that fortune and chance are words of the heathen, with the signification of which the minds of the pious ought not to be occupied. For if all success be the benediction or blessing of God, and calamity and adversity his malediction or curse, there is no room left in human affairs for fortune or chance. So the idea of fortune or chance, an impersonal thing in the universe that determines the outcome in various circumstances in our world, simply doesn't exist for Calvin. Next slide. Okay, now some of you may have heard of the acronym TULIP. TULIP, and you can, uh, you, know, you can think of the flower, if it helps. Um, TULIP is an acronym that helps us understand the five points of Calvinism. So we've touched upon some of the ideas in the Institutes, and now we move to the five points of Calvinism, which come out of the Institutes and Calvin's other writings. Now, if you want to tackle reading the Institutes, Um, (laughs) You know, if you buy the books, they're like, there's three or four of them and they're, you know, inches thick. Um, You can also get them for free on the internet because they are in the public domain. And you can go to lots of websites and you can go to a website called projectgutenberg.org. And on projectgutenberg.org, named after the famous Johannes Gutenberg, inventor of the printing press, Um, And so now we have these books in electronic form. You can read Calvin's Institutes for free at some of these websites, and trust me, it'll take a long time. (laughs) Uh, But it's certainly worthwhile. So um, it's important to understand, Calvin didn't call them his five points, and he didn't come up with the acronym TULIP. These summaries came later. And again, because not everyone is a theologian, goes to seminary, and has hours and hours every day to read books, um, you know, it is helpful sometimes to, to just hit upon some summaries. Next slide. So the five points of Calvinism, they were not called this at first. Um, initially, they were incorporated into a document called the Counter Remonstrance of 1611. And the ideas contained in the Counter Remonstrance of 1611, um, this document was put together by pro-Calvinist theologians and churchmen. Uh, It was derived from Calvin's theology, and it was, this document, uh, you know, this is something where, again, on the internet, you could go down this rabbit hole if you find this interesting. And um, I, you know, again, if you've you've got the time, I encourage you to study it. Um, And all you need to do is um, type in this title, or you can just type in Remonstrance into a, a web browser. Uh, search engine and you can study what that controversy because if there's a counter remonstrance initially there was a remonstrance you can look up the word on dictionary.com to find out what it means Um, (laughs) and again interesting you know if you've got a couple hours to kill um, you know during COVID-19 a lot of us have found we've got extra time on our hands use it to study some Things in church history, I'd incur, it's, it can be very helpful. Or it can confuse you all the more, <laughs> one of the two. So this document was created by Dutch Reformed churchmen in response to a document written by Arminians, not to be confused with Armenians. There is a difference. Arminians were Christians who followed the Dutch theologian James Arminius. Arminians differed from Calvinists on several key points. Next slide. Again, here's something we don't have time to delve into. I'm not going to get into Arminian ideas today. We'll touch on those uh, in a future talk. But I want to focus now on the five points of Calvinism. So point one is the total depravity of man. Scripture declares that man is born in dead in, sorry, man is dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, unless he is born again. More than that, the man who is dead in sin hates God, and his carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7. His will is stubbornly steeled against God. Also, dead men are not capable of any action on their own. They are dead and cannot participate in saving themselves. Point two, unconditional election. God chooses to give some people eternal life without looking for anything good in them as a condition for loving and saving them. Scripture declares, you have not chosen me. I, God, have chosen you. John 15:16. Next slide. Point 3, limited atonement. Christ's death on the cross actually paid for sins. It is not just that we should follow his example and carry our crosses. Our sin must be atoned for, and Christ's death has done so. Acts twenty twenty eight says that God bought the church with his own blood. The Bible says that Christ laid down his life for his sheep and only them. John 10, verse 11. The atonement is limited to the elect of God. Point four, irresistible grace. God's grace to save a person cannot be resisted. Grace is God's free and unmerited power to save a person from his sins which would otherwise lead him to hell. Grace brings him to heaven who naturally would end in eternal hell. Next slide. Point five, preservation of the saints. God preserves his people so they can never be lost. Once saved, always saved. John chapter 10 verses 27 through 30 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. And that's a quote from the New American Standard Bible. Next slide. Okay, this point also implies the perseverance of the saints. Those who never fall away are the saints. They are holy. They are given power to live holy lives. They continue in well-doing. And in fact, this is the grace of God that continues uh, to enable them to live holy lives. Philippians 1.6 six. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, those who apparently fall away either never had true faith to begin with, 1 John 2.19, or if they are saved but not presently walking in the Spirit, they will be divinely chastened, Hebrews 12.5-11, and will repent, First John 3, 6 through 9. Next slide. I want to talk a little bit about the spread of Calvinist beliefs throughout Europe and then beyond to really the rest of the world. Calvin's work in theology and church government spread within his lifetime through Switzerland, France, the Netherlands, into Britain and the British Isles, and even as far west as parts of Spain. Through connections with John Knox of Scotland, Calvin's theology found a home in the Scottish Highlands. Parts of Hungary and Romania were influenced by Calvinism, and there are reformed churches in Hungary today. Uh, Poland, which today is predominantly Catholic, although uh, there's a lot of Protestant mission work going on in Poland, even Poland was at one time uh, powerfully touched by the Reformation. Next slide. Most settlers in the American Mid-Atlantic and New England colonies were Calvinists, beginning in the 1600s. These included the English Puritans, the French Huguenots, Dutch settlers of New Amsterdam, New York today, and the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians of the Appalachian backcountry. country. Non-conforming Protestants, Puritan separatists, independents, and English religious groups coming out of the English Civil War looked to Calvinism and reform doctrine for principles of faith and practice, and spread through the old and new worlds. By the way, did you know that England had a civil war? Did you know that? A lot of people don't. Study it on the internet. (laughs) There's a lot out there. (laughs) Next slide. Other English dissenters not satisfied with the degree to which the Church of England had been reformed, held overwhelmingly reformed or Calvinist views. They are often cited among the primary founders of the United States of America. Dutch and French Huguenot Calvinist settlers were also the first European colonizers of South Africa beginning in the 17th century who became known later as the Boers or Afrikaners. Interestingly, Sierra Leone, a sub-Saharan African country, was largely colonized by Calvinist settlers from Nova Scotia who were largely black loyalists, blacks who had fought for the British during the American War of Independence. Next slide. Some of the largest Calvinist communions were started by 19th and 20th century missionaries in Africa and Asia. Especially large are those in Indonesia, Korea, and Nigeria. In South Korea, there are approximately 20,000 Presbyterian congregations with about nine to 10 million church members scattered in more than 100 Presbyterian denominations. And those statistics are almost about—I don't know—ten years old. So it could be very different today. Um, it is often difficult, by the way, to get accurate statistics on uh, church membership, um, even even across broad categories such as who, within a particular country, who is Christian, who is non-Christian, etc. So, you know, give or take a million. <laughs> But in South Korea today, Presbyterianism is the largest, you know, if you count all the Presbyterian churches, it uh, accounts for uh, the largest, it is the largest Christian uh, stream within South Korea. And throughout the entire world, it is estimated that Reformed slash Presbyterian, Congregational, and United Churches represent approximately 75 million believers today. Next slide. John Calvin lived a short life as was common with so many people of his day. Disease and poor health were a constant part of life and he died at the, what we would consider fairly young age of 54 on May 27th, 1564 in Geneva, Switzerland. He had finally finished the institutes in its most developed form, and he did not live nearly long enough to begin to see how widely his work would affect the entire world. That concludes my discussion of John Calvin. I've given you the broadest of broad brush approaches to the subject. There's so much more, honestly, you could spend your life (laughs) the whole rest of your life, uh, studying his works, uh, studying the effect that his uh, theology and theological developments have had upon Protestant Christianity. Um, It's a very broad subject, and I have just touched on what I thought were the most important points. Does anyone have any questions or comments?